All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, we're going to start a new book today. So we're going to we're going to look over the next. I don't know how many weeks it'll be. It might be five. It might be. I don't know. We'll see. But um, at the book of Jonah. So turn there. And um, I know it's a very familiar story, but I know there there are, there are just steps to this book that we often don't get to. So let me open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. And today, just so you know, my objective today, we may get to uh, the end of Jonah 1. That would be kind of best case scenario, I guess. We may just get through the introduction. That's fine. So um, I want to make sure that we cover it thoroughly and that whatever questions or comments you have, we have time to, to address. So let me pray. Father, for your goodness and grace, we give you thanks. We praise you for the gift of one another. We praise you for the gift of this time. We praise you for the gift of your word. We know that your word is alive and is active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And your spirit works through your word to do your work. And so for all these good promises, we give you thanks. And we look forward expectantly to your spirit's work through your word even now. So Father, please work in and through your word. Convict us of sin. Train us in righteousness, thoroughly equip us for every good work, all things that your word does. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I want to begin with some introduction to Jonah. Obviously, the, the, the thing that everyone knows about and, uh, with Jonah is the story of uh, him getting swallowed by the great fish that's recorded for us. And so that's vivid. It's a, it's a story, you know, if you grew up in the church, you heard it from a very young age. And, and, you know, there are reasons for that. It's, it's a dramatic story. But I want to kind of hold off on that, hold off on the fish for a minute, and, and, try to, and try to look at the book in the way it presents itself to us. In other words, I want to I read the account of Jonah from, uh, and try to make sure we're paying attention to the details, not jumping ahead to the thing that's best known. Now, I don't, I don't, um, I don't think it's bad that we know that story well of Jonah and the great fish. Jesus, of course, cites it, and it did have massive significance in terms of his own uh, portrayal and, and understanding and, and, and development of, as he taught, uh, of, of what he was doing. He talks about Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights. Um, and, so, and so this is of massive redemptive significance, and, and it's a significant story. So I'm not, I'm not sidelining it, I'm just kind of putting it aside for now so that we can attempt to see what's actually going on in the text and not jump ahead to that. Now, let's talk about the introduction. First of all, um, in the Hebrew Old Testament, there are, and this, you can actually see this in, in our version of the Old Testament, even though the books are in a slightly different order. Are we out of, oh, this is a disaster. Are, do we not have, I can open this room. Is that prerogative? It's a teacher. If it's not for you, who's it for? I mean, Sorry? If it's not for you, who is it for? <laughs> well, that's, I guess, a good point. I don't know who uses this during the week. I'm sure people much more important in the life of the church than me. This is, uh, <laughs> this is dry erase, right? So that means it will, it's not permanent. It's going to be good? Okay. Um, all right, so so in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, if you pick up a Hebrew Bible, if you're learning Hebrew, 
Um, you'll see that the books are ordered slightly differently. In the Hebrew Bible, the books are ordered in a, there's kind of three divisions in the Hebrew Old Testament. There's what, what, what's called the, the Torah. That's almost impossible. Um, give me a minute. This is not, that's not dry erase, right? All right. You don't, uh, okay. Um, I'll try. No, that's not, that's impossible. Um, all right. In the, in, the, in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, it's divided into three parts. It's called the, the first part is called the Torah. That's the Pentateuch. That's our first five books of Moses. Same thing. Then the second is called the Nevi'im. That's, uh, that Nevi'im just means prophets. Um, and then the third part is called the Ketuvim. And the Ketuvim is the writings. Now, so, so in our Bibles, if you just think about parallel how it works in your English Bible... Our Bible is basically divided up into four sections. Uh, we have the Pentateuch right at the beginning. That's so far the same. Then we have um, what we call the historical books, which takes us Joshua through Esther. And then we have poetic books or wisdom books um, that go from uh, um, Job to Song of Songs. And then we have the prophets at the end, major prophets and minor prophets. So there's nothing, I don't think there's anything inspired about either order. In fact, when Jesus talks about uh, his, the Old Testament, he talks about it in a three-part way. He talks, if you remember in Luke 24, he says uh, that he, he showed the disciples from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, uh, all the things there concerning himself. And then earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus talks about the rejection of the Jewish people of, of the prophets. And he says, you've rejected all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. And, and that too reflects a three-part division of the Old Testament. Because in the Hebrew Old Testament, if you pick up a Hebrew Bible, uh, it, it ends with Ezra and Nehemiah, which really appended on the Chronicles. Chronicles is really the last big book in the Hebrew Old Testament. So... It, it, who's the last prophet in that book? Well, it's prophet Zechariah. So Jesus is thinking, able to Zechariah, the beginning to the end of your Old Testament. Did you find one? Yeah, yeah. Oh. That's fantastic. Wow. Thank you so much. No problem. I wonder if this is going to work. This is a smaller one, though, so I, it's unclear to me. Will this work? Um, oh, that's great. That's great. So, well, I, I, I'm going to, I just said all this, but that's your three-part Hebrew Old Testament. Sometimes you'll hear it um, called the Tanakh because they're going to insert these um, there. But it's it's Torah, Law, Nevi'im, Prophets, Ketuvim, Writings. Anyway, I'm not trying to bog you down with trivia, but I'm just trying to say that in both of them, in in the Hebrew one and in ours, although they're at different places in the Old Testament order. Um, the right or the sorry, the prophets, the Nevi'im or what we call the prophets, um, are divided into the major prophets and the minor prophets. Uh, that's how we refer to them, and they're in the same order in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, the same order, although they're put earlier, um, but they're arranged the same. But the minor prophets, and I'm drilling down now into the the Nevi'im, 
And the minor prophets of the Nevi'im are called, they're given a special name called the Book of the Twelve. And, 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 and why do you think they're called the Book of the Twelve? Caleb, you want to answer this? I'm going to just put you on the spot. Why, why, why would you think they're called the Book of the Twelve? It's, it's very easy. I'm not trying to put, make you embarrass you. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm blanking out right now. Okay, well, uh, here it is, here it is. This is going to blow your mind, because there's 12 of them in, in it. There's 12 minor prophets. But they're shown as one book. They're, they're kind of read, in one sense, as one book. So, so now they happen at different times. And, and some happen in the northern kingdom, and some happen in the southern kingdom, as we'll see. But, but they're put all together, and so... One of the things you have to do when you come to the minor prophets, or what Hebrew, uh, what Jewish interpreters call the Book of the Twelve, one of the things you have to do when you come to the minor prophets is you have to both think about it in terms of its actual chronological background. When did Jonah take place? Where was he from? What was going on then? We're going to talk a lot about that. But there's another context that you always have to think about when you come to the minor prophets, and that's really the context of the twelve, and and the, and the question you're going to ask. We're not going to ask this question too much today because we're not going to get so deep into the text today. But in future weeks, we will ask this question, which is not only what why why does this make sense or what is this teaching in that moment in history, but also what is the context of it because it's always both in in our Bible and in the, the, the Hebrew ordering, it's always put together with these other minor prophets. In other words, when you come to the minor prophets, it'd be kind of like if you came to it, it's not quite like this, but it's, it's a little bit like this. If you want to study one chapter in, let's say, Romans, you say, I want to study Romans 8. I want to really understand Romans 8. That's great. You can do that. And in fact, there have been long sermon series preached just on Romans 8. I could point you in the direction of really good sermons that that are long series and they're just on that one chapter so you can do that right you can study romans 8 but if you studied romans 8 the first thing you would do is you would say all right what's going on in romans 7 and then as you got to the end you'd say how does this how does this tie into romans 9 in other words you'd want to set it in the argument of the book as a whole and so even if you were going to drill down into that one chapter and all the rich theology there and you really could spend a long time in it but you'd want to set it in context. And so all I'm saying is, in all of this, is when you come to one of the minor prophets in particular, this is, this is more true of the minor prophets really than any other uh, book, except maybe, maybe I would say the Pentateuch would be the same way. Like if you're coming into Leviticus, you want to know Exodus, Gen Genesis, Exodus, you want to know Numbers. It's all part of this whole, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the books of, books of Moses. But... Um, but the minor prophets are very similar to that, in that, in that while they, they were written at different times and they, they addressed different audiences, initial audiences, I should say, um, and, and they're even geographically uh, in different places, it, 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 there, is a, there is a theology of the Twelve. There is a, a kind of you know, way of understanding th this as a whole. And so I don't want to lose sight of that. So I'm just warning you ahead of time and also trying to get the wheels turning in your mind so that 
if you go out and you're looking at Jonah 1 this week, or maybe you're looking at Jonah 2 in preparation, that you're also kind of tuned into, you know, what might be interesting would be to read through all the 12. And actually, you could do that. It wouldn't take you that long. Let me read through all the 12 and sort of see what some of the themes are. And what does Jonah contribute to that? And what, what, you know, what would we be missing if we didn't have Jonah in the book of the 12? Um, and how is it different from the other ones? And how is it the same as the other ones? Those are questions to ask when you study a book like Jonah, or really when you come to any one of the minor prophets. So there's a, there's a, a part of me that, that always feels a little bit, I mean, I'm excited about studying Jonah here, but there's always a part of me that's a little bit, you know, just wary when I come to just one minor prophet. And I've done it in preaching and other things. I've said, all right, we're going to look at Nahum. And, and, and I do that, and I think you can do it, and look at it as a whole, and it is an individual book, and it has its own, uh, you know, sort of integrity and message and everything that's distinct. But it also is part of a little bit of a larger context that's worth really thinking about uh, whenever you come to one of the minor prophets. Does that make sense? So that, that's all. I know it's a long, it's a long way around the block here, but, but there's a reason for it, because... I want us to not lose sight of that as we go through, and I'm just preparing you that that's part of what I want us to do in class when we actually dive into the, uh, to the message of the book. All right, so far so good? Okay, let's move on to another part of the background. It's just more kind of traditional part of it, but I think it's really relevant, particularly when we start even just in Jonah chapter 1. Um, all right. When did Jonah take place? Who was Jonah? What was he doing? What else was going on at the same time? Well, um, first of all, Jonah is um, from a town, Gath Heifer, in Lower Galilee. And it's kind of in the, it would have been in the, the tribal area of Zebulun, and it's a little bit east of Nazareth, so that might help. If you think about the, the life and ministry of Jesus, and even look, you know, if, if your Bible has maps in it, uh, sometimes there's a map of, of all of the land, but then sometimes there's like a zeroed in, kind of zoomed in um, map of Galilee and the region around Galilee. And this would actually kind of fit in that. So, so by this point in Israel's history, the nation has been split into two. You remember um, that shortly after the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam takes over and he still owns or is the king over the whole land. But what Rehoboam does very early on in his reign is Rehoboam decides to tax the people even more heavily and he's very cruel about it. And so, and so there's a division between the northern tribes which are then from that point on known as Israel. Sometimes they're called something else, but typically called Israel. And then the southern tribes, which are called Judah. Now, Jonah is from Israel. He's from the northern tribes. And we know a little bit about it. Jonah doesn't see this coming yet. But um, later on, uh, when, the, when the Assyrians come through, they take out uh, the northern tribes. They take out Israel. They get that far in. And, and they, they try to get into the southern kingdom. They do get into the southern kingdom. They try to take Jerusalem, and they're not able to take Jerusalem. God miraculously intervenes in the reign of Hezekiah. And so then the Assyrians kind of back off, but you know that that's not over because then the Babylonians are going to rise up. And this is all, we talked about this in Isaiah. 
the Babylonians are going to come all the way through, and they're going to take out, they're going to sweep through what was already taken by the Assyrians, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're going to come down and get the southern tribes of Judah as well, including Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, as you know, sacks Jerusalem, and we, that's recorded for us now. But so just, if you want to, I'm going to, I do this with fear and trembling, because you all know that, that any any resemblance to scale here is purely coincidental. And also, um, yeah, and I'm not really good at this stuff, but um, but we're talking about, so like if, if Assyria and Babylon are over here, they, they, don't, they don't exist at the same time. But there are all these kingdoms that rise up kind of over here in the Tigris and the Euphrates. And then they, they're going to sweep through. And this is always what they want to do because they can't really get to Egypt this way because it's desert. And, and so the way they get to Egypt is this way. And, and right smack in the middle is, you know, well, at the top, Israel. And then at the bottom, Judah, at this point. Um, that land that God had given to his people in the time of Joshua. So, um, so they're always caught in between. And we talked about this a lot in Isaiah, particularly in the kind of early chapters of Isaiah, that the temptation for everyone in here is always to try to, you know, find a way to either make an alliance with Egypt, because Egypt is this great power in the south, or to make some kind of alliance or something with, I don't know, maybe someone up here, or, or maybe even all the way over here. And that's always the game politically. Now, what Isaiah says repeatedly to the kings of Judah, because he's in the area of Jerusalem, what Isaiah says repeatedly is, don't do this. You're looking to Israel or to Egypt for help. They can't help you. And plus, why would you make an alliance with one of your enemies? Why would you make an alliance with people who are opposed to your God? And so, but that's the temptation for them. Their temptation is always to kind of rest in rest in man, rest in might in some fashion, particularly as it as it's expressed in one of these great kingdoms. Because these are always the great kingdoms in this side of the Mediterranean. There's either someone over here or someone down here. And sometimes both. And, and the Israelites are sort of caught right in between. And they're pressured from both sides. And they feel that. And so the Lord put them there for that reason. The Lord put them there to basically say, and this is a good lesson for us. The Lord put them there because in putting them in this land in between where they're just pressed always from both sides, um, it was to teach them to trust in Him. And that's the great, that's really one of the great messages of Isaiah. We didn't we didn't revisit the beginning of Isaiah when we came to the end because we were trying to kind of get finished. But but remember at the beginning how emphatic Isaiah is that what, what you need to do is trust the Lord. That the Lord puts his people, and this is still true today, the Lord puts his people in these situations where we're tempted to look for strength somewhere else. He always does this because he wants his people to grow and to learn to trust him and him alone. And sometimes that means stripping away other things that would otherwise, we would think, protect us. And, and sometimes it's just a call to, to, to trust in Him. And they're very visibly and tangibly in that position all the time throughout the, the monarchy. So this is one of those times, the time of Jonah. But actually, in the time of Jonah, 
he so he's up here um, in in the northern kingdom, and and we know about the king who is reigning at this time. The king who was reigning at this time during the time of Jonah was Jeroboam the second. So um, this is uh, now this is really significant because so so when did Jeroboam reign? Well, his reign was seventy two to seven fifty three. BC. So, um, so to put it in perspective with Isaiah, this is a little before the time of Isaiah. Different side of country too. He, Jonah's in the north. Isaiah was in the south. But, um, but, but also a little before Isaiah. But contemporary, or maybe not exactly contemporary, but kind of overlapping with um, Amos and Hosea up here. So Amos. Hosea and Jonah. Uh, now, parenthesis. Um, this is a reminder of that whole thing I just told you about the book of the Twelve. Because you might be scratching your heads and saying, wait a minute, Amos and Hosea, why aren't they right next to Jonah then in my Bible or even in the Hebrew Bible and both follow the same ordering? And And the reason for that is because Again, the Book of the Twelve isn't arranged chronologically. The Book of the Twelve isn't arranged geographically. In fact, when you're moving through the Minor Prophets, you have to like pay careful attention because it's not all the same context, and it's not all the same time period, and it's not all the same kings that are ruling over them. So why is it that um, Jonah actually, although he probably came just a little bit before Amos and Hosea, although overlapped, why is it that he's, he's coming after them in the 12th? Well, again, there are thematic reasons. There are theological reasons. It, it, it's, I, I'm not, again, we're not, I'm not trying to deal with this too much today, but just to say, even the fact that these guys are all together at roughly the same time under the same king in the north, but they're not together in the Minor Prophets is, is a good reminder that the Minor Prophets are trying to Show us other things about the um, about uh, other kind of thematic things, and again, like I said, just before Isaiah in the Southern Kingdom. Now, um, let's take a quick look at the other place where Jonah is mentioned, because this will help give us a little context. Um, and Jonah, and what we see is that Jonah is mentioned in um, in Second Kings, and this is what we'd expect because this is the record of. Jeroboam the second. Now this is not the Jeroboam, by the way, who is the first king of the northern tribes, who who puts these two gold, who builds these two golden calves again and again in the book of Kings. We're told that this, that sin of Jeroboam the first was a snare to the people. They always worshipped these golden calves from that point on, and so it was a huge thing for them. That's why there are no good kings in the northern kingdom, and the worship was corrupted. And Jonah is in that world where, where that worship has been corrupted by these golden calves. Uh, Jeroboam II, we know, followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam I, but, but, we, um, but it's, it's not the same guy. Um, okay, so let's, uh, 2 Kings 14. I'll start in verse 23, and... Uh, Jonah is mentioned in verse 25. This is the only other place he's mentioned 
in the Old Testament in terms of a historical account. But I'm going to start in verse 23. So I want you to get a feel for like the times in which he was living and how things were. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, so it's, it's connecting the chronology with the southern kingdom, even though we're in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. Long reign. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So his namesake, the first Jeroboam, the one who built these golden calves. Jeroboam the second just follows right along that trail. Um, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. I told you that already. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And then it says the rest of the things that he did are uh, recorded for us somewhere else. Now, um, understand what's happening here. Because this is, again, sitting in the backdrop of Jonah's ministry, um, among others. Jeroboam was, from the standpoint of the Lord, a very wicked king. However, if you were living on the ground at that time, a couple things were going on that you would have seen as really positive. Number one, the Lord worked through Jeroboam, and Jonah was the one who told him to do this, um, told Jeroboam to do this. He worked through Jeroboam to actually expand the borders of Israel beyond what they had ever been. And actually, if you, if you trace it out on a map, what you will see is that Jeroboam II tr uh, expanded the borders of Israel farther than they had ever been expanded except in the time of Solomon. Almost as far as Solomon himself had expanded them. Now Solomon had the United King and he had Judah as well. But this is, in terms of the northern part, he gets really far. In other words, in other words from a geopolitical perspective... Uh, Jeroboam II's reign was as good as it ever got for Israel. All this pressure that they normally felt, um, they really didn't feel that for 41 years. He was extremely successful from a military perspective. Now we know why. It wasn't because Jeroboam II was a particularly you know, te great tactician or anything like that. It was ultimately, I mean, there, I'm sure the Lord used his tactical skills, but it was really because the Lord was with him. And the Lord basically said, even though you've been wicked for generations, I'm, I'm not ready at this point to destroy Israel. I have other purposes right now. And so I'm not going to destroy Israel. And, 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 the Is and the Israelites are really suffering. And so I'm going to allow them to expand the border under Jeroboam. So it's the Lord's hand of blessing. And apparent, apparently what happened was Jonah, as part of his preaching ministry, went to Jeroboam and told Jeroboam to do this, said, this is what the Lord has said, and Jeroboam did it. And so that's good. And certainly if you're living in Israel at that time, if you're living in the Northern Kingdom, particularly if you're not really spiritually tuned in, you're just kind of looking at your daily life and you're not thinking about the Lord, um, you would think that it's probably never been better than this. And you'd be right. 
it really hadn't ever been better. Now, we know as well from this time that actually um, the in 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 this sort of area, right? Um, it was so we're actually Babylon's not there yet. We're, we're just dealing with Assyria. It was actually a time of real weakness for the Assyrian kingdom. They were they were fighting, um, and we know this not from the Bible, but from other texts, they were fighting these people kind of on the, the hills and the mountains, and their, their attention was turned elsewhere. And so they, um, the Assyrian kingdom, while it was still there and it was still powerful, it was not, they were not projecting any power this, this way. And that was, again, in the Lord's providence, that was how Jeroboam was able to expand. Jeroboam's able to expand this way because the Assyrians are kind of focused up this way. And so, and, and they're also not very powerful this time. So, so good things are happening over here for Israel. Israel's kind of at its best point militarily. And Assyria is kind of at its lowest point. I mean, obviously later on it gets totally destroyed by the Babylonians, but it's sort of at, it's at a lower point than it was just before or just after this. So Nineveh, this great Assyrian city, that, and it really is a great city. I mean, I mean, we, we have ruins of, of the wall or, or remnants of the walls of Nineveh at the time of Jonah. And they're massive and stunning and beautiful and overwhelming. You, it's one of these things that you see uh, that you just sort of say, how did, how did they ever do that? I mean, just so so it's a, it's a powerful city and it's a mighty city and it's a it's a kind of it's a city that has a glory to it. But you know, they're good days militarily in Israel and pretty difficult days in Assyria. Um, now, again, that that might lie a little bit in the background when we come to the Book of Jonah, because because. The Lord says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and to preach destruction to Nineveh. And the subtext is, and Jonah knows what the subtext is, the subtext is, and perhaps they'll repent. And, um, and, and Jonah, as we know, and we'll see it in chapter 1, that's the last thing he wants to do. And, and sometimes people have asked the question, why is Jonah so reluctant to do it? Well, it may have been fear. Um, certainly, it was partly motivated by fear. I mean, this would have been a hard thing to do. Uh, it's a long journey, and it's a, you know, it's, it's it could be rejected. And it, there are lots of reasons not to want to go to Nineveh if you're in Jonah's shoes. But also, also as many people have pointed out, there's a bit of a, you know, Jonah is willing to speak to his own king. That would have that would have evoked fear as well. But he'll do it. He doesn't want to go over there to those people. So, so there's a bit of, you know, I don't know what the, exactly the right word is because it doesn't quite fit, but there's a kind of, maybe a kind of ethnic um, barrier that Jonah doesn't, you know, he doesn't care about those kind of people. But also, um, but also it could be the case, and I think, I think there's evidence to suggest this, that Jonah's sort of saying, you know, no, what, what I want is, I want... We, I want them destroyed. You know, I, I, and they're, right now, it's been good days because Nineveh's not very strong. 
And, and it would be even better days if they were completely destroyed. And so Jonah may also be thinking in a very, in a very kind of worldly way that, that Lord, you, you, have, you, have weakened, you have weakened Assyria, and that's a good thing. And, and I don't want to see them strengthened again. I don't want to see them blessed. I want to see them totally destroyed. It's so close, like we can almost taste it. We're expanding, they're contracting. It's so close to having a situation where they're not a problem anymore. They're not a, a threat to us in a, in a daily way. And now you want me to go to them and actually preach to them something that might help? So, so all of that must be lingering in the background when Jonah receives this call from the Lord. Um, it really was a time when... Um, the the Assyrians were engaged in a life and death struggle, but it was on the other side of them, and they end up winning, but uh, but it was not clear that they're going to win at that time. And Israel is is growing, and and while we know that that's as far as they're going to get, and then after that they're just going to be chipped away at and destroyed. Uh, they don't know that at the time. They think this maybe this trajectory just keeps going on both directions. The Ninevites, the, the Assyrians get contracted. We get, we become a, a great empire. All right, that's uh, that's all. I've given you a lot of information, but um, questions about that, comments about that, anything else? Okay. All right. Then we will we will go on. Um, I want to actually point out one other thing, and this is with respect to Amos and Hosea, because this lurks in the background. Now, I've said, when we come to the Minor Prophets, we want to take them as they're presented to us, and so take Jonah in the context uh, that it's, it's given, you know, with the two books that it's between. But I also do want to reference the, the, um, the ministries of Amos and Hosea, because one of the things we see in both of these ministries is that um, Amos and Hosea, now they're not preaching to Nineveh, they're preaching to the northern kingdom, but they do um, hold out this, this opportunity of repentance. They do hold out this possibility that if these people who are called by the Lord's name would turn away from their sin and return to the Lord that, you know, the Lord will, will bless them, that the, that the Lord has shown them exactly what they're supposed to do. And so while Amos and Hosea, like almost all the prophets are, are condemning in their preaching, there's also a note of hope there. And Jonah, Jonah would surely have understood that that's always the way that it works with the prophets of Israel. You know, there's this interesting little, uh, thing that's going on in the background. Um, it's first introduced to us in 1 Samuel 19, but then we go all the way to Kings and 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 Second Kings 4 and, and and all the way forward. And and there's this there's this group, but we don't know much about them. It's kind of enigmatic. There's this group that's mentioned about six times in the Old Testament called the School of the Prophets, and. Again, we don't know a ton about it, except we know that the real prophets, um, like Elisha or uh, you know many of the minor prophets, would come 
out from those that school of the prophets and do their prophetic work. In other words, they were taught there and they were instructed in some fashion. And we don't have we don't have time to kind of go down the trail of what was going on and how they were taught. But the point is, there was a kind of fraternity of genuine, real prophets of the Lord. And we know there was also a fraternity of false prophets. We see that in the story of Micaiah, where the king has surrounded himself with all these prophets of Yahweh, but actually only one is a true prophet, and the rest are false prophets. The other 400 are false prophets. Um, so there was a kind of... You know, the reason I'm bringing all this up is to say, Jonah is given the time period and given the place where he's, where he's rising up. Jonah was no doubt connected with, understood... Uh, what what his prophetic responsibilities were. In other words, he knew the job description. He knew he knew how, how he was supposed to live. He knew what he was supposed to do. He knew other people who had engaged in that kind of ministry uh, in the past. But in fact, there's a there's a Jewish tradition that we don't really have any evidence for that connects Jonah all the way back to the ministry. Of, of Elijah and Elisha. There's, there's a kind of complicated legend around that. But, but well, that's probably not true. But the point is that he, um, he, 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 he is, it's not like he's just out there and he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. And, and it's, not, it's not that he doesn't know, and this is clear in the book, what preaching repentance could lead to. Because the, the, the thread that runs through all the prophets, even when they're proclaiming judgment, is that in that proclamation of judgment, there's this sort of, know, silver lining's the wrong word, but there's this kind of other, there, there's an offer of repentance. In other words, whenever they're saying, the Lord is going to judge you for their sin, they're also saying, unless, unless you turn away completely from it. And the Lord's very merciful. And, and so Jonah knew that. He says he knew that. And, and he would have been from a, a group of people who certainly would have known that and practiced it. All right. So that sort of sets Jonah a little bit in his context. Now, let's, um, uh, let's look at this the very beginning of the book. Because I know that we're, we're, we're sort of running out of time. And that's okay. Um. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So, again, based on what Jonah would have known, based on what it tells us about where he's from, what the other parallel texts tell us about who he was, and how his ministry had developed, and how he had grown up. Jonah knows when the Lord, first of all, a couple things. First of all, Jonah knows that when the word of the Lord comes to him, that's his job. Like You have to do what the Lord says. And, and secondly, because you're a prophet, that's what you have to do. And secondly, Jonah also knows that what the Lord is telling him to do is to proclaim judgment against Nineveh, but in that judgment, there's always this subtext of repentance. Uh, because because that's how it worked with the prophets. They proclaimed judgment, but there was always a unless you repent appended to it. Now, Jonah um, 
uh, is going to try to do the exact opposite. And there's sort of an insanity about it because Jonah would no doubt have known, just like we all know, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to the remotest end of the ocean, you're there. And Jonah knew that. Those were, those were texts he probably had memorized. Um, and, and yet what Jonah does is he's going to try to get as far away from, from this as possible. Jonah, it says in verse 3, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And again, there's a kind of almost humorous irony there. Um, just a side note, you want to think about who, who would have been writing this? Who would have, who would have written this? And, and I think we'd have to say Jonah must, I mean, there's, there's no one other than Jonah who could have written this. And, but he's not speaking in the first person in the book. But, but I think there are these moments where you get a little reflection into his mindset. Like, I'm going to actually try to get away from the presence of Yahweh. And yet Jonah would have known, I can't flee from the presence of Yahweh. There's no way I can do that. But he's going to go to Tarshish. Now, we don't know where Tarshish is exactly, but most commentaries that you read, and this is probably right, are saying that Tarshish is like all the way over here. Um, so you get in a boat in the Mediterranean, and you go past Greece, and you go past Italy, and you go probably all the way to Spain, and, and, then, and then that's where Tarshish is, we think. Again, nobody's exactly sure, but it's far, far away. The point is, you're supposed to go here on land, so you're going to get in a boat and go all the way over here. And from the perspective of anyone at this time, that's about as far as the world goes. You know, you've got this stuff over here, which is sort of the outer edges, and then you've got this all the way over here, which is the other outer edge. If you think about the, like the Roman Empire, this is Roman Empire is much later, but if you think about that map of the Roman Empire, that's that's kind of going from one end of it to the exact opposite end. It's it's the world. It's the end of the world. Uh, it's as far away as he could get. And notice this. I I, I just want to make this point as a kind of last. Um, Last point before we break for today. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now that away from the presence of the Lord again is mentioned several times because there's almost an irony to it. You know, he thinks he's going to get away from the Lord. Well, he, you can't get away from the Lord, Jonah, and you can't get away from the Lord today. But there's something else that I want to just point out that's really kind of interesting by way of application, and we'll end with this. When Jonah decides he's going to disobey the word of God, and he's going to instead get as far away from the Lord and the Lord's will as possible, as at least he thinks that's what he's doing. Notice that in God's providence, there's an immediate opportunity for him to seemingly do that. And Jonah seems to kind of get caught in this trap where he thinks because God has providentially given him the opportunity to sin, that therefore, you know, it's going to work. And, 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 you know, the reason why I point that out is because the same thing happens today. If you, if you decide, you know, I want to I move into a new phase of life where I meet people who 
are not concerned about the things of the Lord or who are pursuing something else. You know, it could be that the day after you think that, you're going to run into some people like that. Um, it could be that if you, if you have intense, if you're intending in your mind or toying with sin that violates the word of God, it may be that in God's providence, you know, that very hour or, or sometime shortly thereafter, providentially the opportunity will present itself. It's often the way it takes place. It's often the way it takes place in the Bible. It's exactly how it happens with Jonah. Because think about it. Going all the way to Tarshish, that's like, that's a, that's a, there aren't many boats leaving from Joppa going all the way over there. Like it's pretty, it's pretty shocking and surprising. And I'm sure Jonah, just because of the way the time sequence is played out, I'm sure Jonah gets there to Joppa and thinks, oh, this is perfect. Exactly where I wanted to go which is the end of the world, the opposite direction, is available to me. I can now do this sin that I wanted to do. And instead of, and, but you see, this is the thing in the Bible. Um, there are people who operate based on what they see, and there are people who operate based on what they know of the Word of God. They're hearers and seers. There are those who walk by faith or by sight. And Jonah here thinks that because the sight is playing out in the way that he wants it to, Therefore, he can do that and escape God's presence. And you can't escape God's presence. And you can't escape God's judgment. And you can't escape the consequences of violating the word of God. Which is what Jonah's going to learn. But he thinks, at the time in verse 3, he no doubt thinks, I beat the system. I, I must be the best sinner who's ever lived. The smartest sinner who's ever lived. Because I am actually going to get away with fleeing from God's presence, even though he told me in his word precisely what to do. I'm actually going to get away with it. And that's sort of the tension in verse 3 that it begins with. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the time you've given us. Thank you for this great, rich book. And we pray that we would be good stewards of it and that we would learn from it and grow through our study of it. And we thank you uh, for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.